0: hello
1: <laughs> you're using your asmr voice hello i don't even know what, i think mine would be like several octaves lower than my normal voice hello and welcome to plants and puppets like that
0: uh, i could i could go and like try to go closer to the microphone and speak even quieter so that you just hear the base of my voice but i won't do that the entire time because i think it's very annoying <laughs> have you ever been into asmr videos
1: I've seen a couple of them. And there's one um, my friend keeps on sending me. This is a tiny, I think she's Korean, a tiny Korean woman who, like, the, the video is her just eating a table full of food. Like, it's it's literally six to ten people's food portions. And she just, like, eats it while also having the microphone sounds of, like, her pouring the Coke and her drinking that and, like, eating everything, like, slurping. And then there's, like, little... um. Um, subtitles explaining, oh, I love this. Oh, look at this crab. So soft, so tasty. Mm, mm, mm. And like, it's. <laughs> You're describing
0: it's, hell to me.
1: It's so bizarre to see somebody just eat that much food and continue to enjoy it. And like a very small person. Like, I've never been into those eating competition kind of things, but she's not. It's weird because she's not doing it very very fast or like messily. It's very like contained and tidy, but it's just an obscene amount of food like it's really yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it also has this ASMR thing where it's got the the sound and um yeah, the fizzing and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. No ASMR like but I I have misophonia. I I hate sounds and um Therefore, like, even people speaking closely into the microphone or, like, scratching the microphone or all of the things that were trendy back then, like, it just made me very, very, very uncomfortable. So I, um, like, I mostly know ASMR as a joke. I never really actively enjoyed a- a- ASMR content ever.
1: I mean, yeah.
0: But I think, Each yeah, today is own. a little bit ASMR because we we seem to be both a little bit tired. Like... I don't know what your reason is. Like I my task today was to exhaust a little baby, and exhausting a baby doesn't work without exhausting yourself. So here I am. Being outside for like six hours straight um on playgrounds and running around and playing and doing. Um which is fun. I'm not complaining, I'm just saying <laughs> like it, it worked like babies falling asleep quickly today, but also I'm falling asleep almost today.
1: (laughs) I'm almost exactly the opposite. I'm not at all physically exhausted. I'm just mentally just like so done. Like lots and lots of busy work stuff at the moment and lots of stuff that requires like different kinds of thinking. So some more creative stuff and more just like intense assessing stuff. And yeah, my mind is dead. I'm glad that uh, tomorrow is the end of the week and then I can take a little like vacation and just do something stupid. Which actually, um, what, one thing I want to say, my friend for Valentine's Day, one of my close friends sent me a book um, and it's called The Song of Achilles. It's like a, I mean, it's about Ar- Achilles and this kind of Helen of Troy, but um, novelized. And she said it's her favorite love story. And I started reading that and it's been such a long time. I mean, I think I say this every single podcast, but I just don't read enough for pure funsies these days like I read constantly my work is reading um, then like for the blog I read um, and then for book club I also read it's that's usually a little bit more of a novel and less of like a scientific document but it's still you know learning educational reading um, writing notes thinking about it and then also I've been reading a lot of books that are more like about serious topics and this is just like one of the funnest kind of it's a light novel it's does you don't need to think about it you just enjoy the way it's written enjoy the story it's like a little bit horny as well so it's like fun like yeah it's really great escapism for lockdown I would I mean only 100 pages in so far but I read that in one sitting and I would it's like 350 pages all up Strong recommendation so far. Really enjoying this whole reading thing again. And I, I know I mention this every podcast, but oh it's nice. It's so nice.
0: <laughs> What's the name of the book again?
1: The Song of Achilles. It's by Madeline Miller.
0: Nice. Yeah. I mean I I also don't really read anything these days. Like I'm I'm lucky when I can make it through half a book club book um <laughs> within like six weeks. So um yeah. I would like to do more, but I'm also saying that every single time we talk about this. What else okay, have you been my, doing?
1: The other thing is, I, did I mention this last time? This is I also can't remember what I've been talking about. So like... Not last weekend, but the weekend before, I went for a walk in my area and I came home basically carrying a bundle of sticks in my mouth like a dog. Not quite carrying them in my mouth, but like I just like was holding a bunch of sticks. And I'm sure it's like familiar to anyone who knows me. I am a collector and a hoarder, so if I see things, I just pick them up. I mean, obviously, I don't steal things, guys, but I <laughs> pick up random... <laughs> In this case, um, my council had pruned a lot of the trees in the areas and the bigger branches they had removed, but like the smaller branches, they just like dropped on the ground. Um, So I picked those up and I took them home and I put them in water and a lot of them are now opening. So they had like little leaf buds on them. So there are leaves coming out. There were some which have this kind of, um, it's like a pussy willow thing but I'm not sure what actually I don't know European trees at all Um, but it's really nice I have like spring happening inside my house a little bit I mean spring is starting to happen outside as well but it's already happening in my house I have these kind of leaf out and these bright vibrant greens and that's making me really happy and then just in the last like five or six days on the field the crocuses have started coming up Um, the kind of blossom trees like I don't know, whatever's related to cherries and apples, they're starting to to come out as well. And I really, like. I can feel spring and it's so exciting. It's just really, it's so lovely.
0: That also excited me in the last uh, week. Uh, I think starting on Saturday here, we had this massive increase in temperatures. Uh, I think here we went from like minus 8, minus 10 to 18 this week. Uh, I think somewhere in Germany, they jumped like the highest ever measured. I think they jumped almost 40 degrees from like minus 20 to um, 18 or 20 degrees um, above zero. So uh, we had this like massive influx of spring with like one negative side effect that I like suddenly developed an allergy that I (laughs) haven't had before. Uh, Like I think I I always had it, but it was never that intense. And it was like suddenly... On Saturday, I was like sitting a lot on my balcony, being outside, enjoying the sun, enjoying the temperatures. And um, then my nose would like completely stuff up and I would like constantly blow my nose as if I would get a cold, but I had like no other cold symptoms. I mean, these days I'm like super paranoid about getting like anything Mm -hmm. that resembles a cold, Um, but I had nothing apart from like constantly running a runny nose. And I read some from some other people on Twitter um, that live in the same area that yeah, the there was like a high pollen count in the air from this like burst of temperature. I think all of the trees like immediately opened up, or like the, I think it's hazel trees that uh, opened up their um, their flower buds um, at this time all at once and had like this massive load of pollen in the air that uh, triggered people like me. Like I, I never really knew before that I had an allergy. But um, now I think, yeah, <laughs> I will have to deal with this in the future. But apart from that, like, um, it's so nice. Like, my mood immediately uh, got so much better. Like, I was sort of in a a little bit of a hole uh, mood wise um, through from December through January, and then now suddenly we have this like bright weather. We can be outside without getting cold immediately, and. Um, I'm just so much happier just so much in such a a much better mood that's really um, a lot of fun this week
1: yeah I'm just looking at little hazel um tree how the kind of blossoms look they have these like little dangling are those catkins is that what it's called these like little could be like little furry pipe cleaner um flowers that release pollen everywhere yeah aren't you lucky (laughs) <laughs> yes. I mean, it's it's the the flowers like wanting getting wanting to get in your nose. It's very um, they chose you.
0: I mean, technically, it's not a, it's, sexy. It's not mean by the pollen. It's mean by my immune system to overreacting to them.
1: Yeah, exactly. The pollen just wants to get close to you, so that's yeah, nice from the I pollen's mean, point of view.
0: The pollen is just there, and my immune system is like, no, we're not having like any a of this.
1: Ass, <laughs> yeah, just like jerking. <laughs> yeah, it. Mm.
0: yeah. So, um. Yeah, that was happening. I also had my birthday on Sunday, um, which was like, I'm, I'm anyway not oh, usually doing... Did you doing...
1: get any nice presents for your birthday?
0: Yeah, I got a very nice package from the UK from a certain someone. Uh, and I was that was really delightful. There was like... Um, a beautiful card in there but also delicious sweets and crumpets now my wife is looking into how to get crumpets here because she when she was living in the uk for a year you
1: can't it can't be done it's not possible i tried i lived in germany for what seven years you can't buy crumpets
0: yeah and it's such a shame because like she like i like them and she loves them and um that's so good you just like triggered her (laughs) she she, she had so many of them when she wasn't living in the uk and then of course she couldn't get any here and now she's like but there must be a way like she's looking into recipes now to make our own um because yeah we need we need you, the crumpets. you can
1: yeah you can make them in a pan right but the thing is honestly to me what's so good about crumpets is also the package crumpets like the ones i love it's it's you know, it's not the fresh bread that you make yourself. It's the fact that they have that kind of packaginess and then you put them in the oven, they get crispy. You put some peanut butter, it drips through. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things that it's like, it's really clear that it's not about access. It's about just no interest. Like, there's no reason why you can't have crumpets in Germany. It's not that hard to make crumpets in Germany, but just like German people have not embraced crumpets culturally, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. That was... I mean.
0: You can get scones here, you can get donuts, uh, bagels, uh, all kinds of sort of non-German baked goods. uh, You find them here, but crumpets is just completely absent.
1: But that was also something I really found when I first moved to Germany, like this thing that you can cross a border and like it's literally like two hours by car and suddenly you've got completely different things in the supermarket. Like like, if you go from Poland to Germany, what you can find is just completely changed. It's like this doesn't make logical sense it's just
0: no it's true what people want and even now like the other day i went to a polish shop to get some sweets um because i like the the swifka the the plums and chocolate i love them and i wanted to get some anyway so incredibly expensive like they are not the most expensive sweet and when you buy them one euro
1: fifty each
0: right (laughs) yeah yeah really like i think i paid two euro fifty for six and usually i think a bag of them is two euros in 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 poland um and as i said like we're really close by but still it's treated as if it would be like an expensive overseas product um and you can only Mm -hmm. get like very few of them to to berlin but yeah still i like them and so i'm i'm paying any price like (laughs) if i can get my hands on some chocolate covered plums shall we talk about plant science
1: we could Favourite plant. Yeah, and this time it is my turn around to do my favourite plant. And I chose Tropeolum, which is technically a genus and not a species. But I think since Yoram did cycads as his (laughs) favourite plant, pretty much anything goes. Um, And although it's a genus, um, it's kind of represented by just a couple of species, which um, are all sort of under the same common name. And that name is Nasturtium which, yoram? do you know what an astertium is? No. You might know, I think the German name is something like Indian Cress, something related to that. So do you know now?
0: No, but I'm I'm Googling it and looking at the picture. I think I saw this in a garden center, but...
1: Okay, so it basically has, I mean, Yara, maybe you can help me describe it. It's got kind of a, a bright yellow, orange, or really, like, dark orange to red flower. Most commonly, it's kind of an orangey-colored flowers with sort of five petals. Pretty basic-looking flower, but very colorful. Um, and then it has these really awesome, amazing, beautiful green leaves, which kind of look like UFO discs. They're quite circular yeah. and round um, with a center um, sort of... The veins come through the center. So the, the stick is like up the center and then it's round around this, this central thing.
0: They remind me of water lilies uh, a little bit. Like, from a, like at least on the photograph, from the texture, they look like they would be very hydrophobic. Um, and there's like some water lilies that have a, a similar shape, I think.
1: That's absolutely wise, clever, intelligent, and I don't know, reminiscent of you, because one of the, <laughs> the cool features about the leaves are that they are very, very hydrophobic. I actually saw a report that I think way back in 2014, MIT was talking about designing new hydrophobic surfaces And some of the inspiration they used was nasturtium leaves. And basically the leaves have these really small grooves on them. And by having this like um, repeated patterns of grooves, that actually helps that when water droplets fall, they bounce more rapidly off. So thus, you know, being more hydrophobic, repelling that water away from them. And... Personally, for me, um, when I was a kid, we had nasturtiums all through our garden growing kind of wild. Um, And my sister and I were a bit into photography as nerdy children. And we used to love sort of taking photographs of and looking at water droplets, which would sit on the leaves. So you you get this really perfect spherical droplet just sort of sitting there and and shimmering and quivering like a little mirror on the leaves, um, which is really, really lovely. On top of that, as a kid, I remember um, at one stage, our our cousin introduced us to the fact that you can actually eat the nasturtiums. So you can eat the flowers, they're edible flowers, um, but also the leaves themselves, um, especially the younger leaves, which are much softer, um, they're not so tough, and they have a kind of peppery flavour. So that's why it's got that other common name that's related to cress. It has this kind of, yeah, slightly spicy flavour. And the, the flower also has a kind of... Um, nectary at the back so it's got a little hood that goes into the back where nectar's stored so obviously the pollinator should go past um the the stigma and sorry the stamens that would be more helpful um to get to the nectar and that's like in this little hood at the back and again as a child with my sister we would like snap this back hood off and like try and suck to get the nectar from there which was something we like to do generally go around our garden trying to like suck nectar out of plants and often ending up sucking like ants up instead because like ants has already got in there and then you just like get a mouthful of formic acid instead of getting some nice sweet (laughs) sweet sweet candy
0: (laughs) what you can't see right now is that teag is actually a colibri i'm a what a colibri going from flower to flower sucking out the nectar what's Uh, a colibri isn't that ah i think it's like it looks sounds like a foreign word in german but it's like a the birds that fly very... F- hummingbird. A hummingbird. A hummingbird. a hummingbird. Yeah, colibri is not like a German word. That's why I thought it's like a common name for it. But it's not like... Yeah, a hummingbird. Tegan is actually a hummingbird um, drinking nectar from the f- the flowers.
1: I do. I think I probably am part bird. Like based on both my suspiciously beaky nose and my desire to have, like, things hanging in my cage. Like, you know, with, like, the budgerigar, you have to put the mirror and, like, the little bits hanging off, and then they kind of, like, poke things with their beak and they, like, rearrange there, And that's basically me in captivity during lockdown. I'm just, like... The other day I went for a walk and somebody had their brown bin on the verge. So like the brown bin is the um, garden waste bin and it was getting ready to get picked up. And I saw that it had some eucalyptus leaves in the brown bin. So I like snuck and like yanked it out. And then like I carried proudly home these eucalyptus leaves and like hung them in my bower. So now I have like just dried eucalyptus leaves. They remind me of home. But um, yeah, definitely some hoarding tendencies Going on there, which are not being improved by lockdown, I would say. Anyway, I think I'll talk about that a bit later in the show. Anyway, nasturtiums, back to nasturtiums. Um, so the reason I wanted to talk about these, I have lots of like really lovely memories of these growing up. I think I mentioned in spring last year that I started growing them even in my garden in um, London, just because they do remind me of home. Apart from trying to eat them, my sister and I used to also go around collecting the seeds of the nasturtiums because they have quite large seeds. They're probably like as big as the fingernail of your your small, your littlest finger. So that kind of that size and then rounded. And they cluster in groups of three, um, but they look like little brains. So it's basically three brains with the underside of the brain facing inside, inwards, um, all gathered around. Um, And they're quite like chunky and green and then they dry and shrivel up a little bit more. And as they shrivel, they become more and more brain-like because they kind of end up with these um, indentations on the surface. So, again, being a, a nerdy child who loved plants, my sister and I had dreams of you know, owning a plant seed store where we would would collect seeds from around the garden and then sell them to poor strangers. Like that was our lemonade stand version when we were small. So apart from the fact that I kind of had nasturtium in like my childhood somewhat prominently, the reason I'm talking about nasturtium today is actually because I just heard a new podcast, which is called Flora and Friends. And Flora and Friends I think just came out yesterday, maybe a few days ago by the time this podcast um, is released. But it's a short 30-minute podcast talking about different plant aspects. Um, So... It's with Judith. Judith is one of our friends who we podcast in the Plant Book Club with. She's a plant scientist. Um, She also is one third of the group, Flora L Designs, who does kind of art science. So they create fabrics based on um, plant structures. And in this first podcast of Flora and Friends, she talks about... Nasturtium, and she specifically introduced the idea of the mystery of flickering nasturtium, which I personally had never heard about before. Did you know what this was, Yoram?
0: No, I have no idea.
1: So I'm going to go sort of briefly into it. Basically, it's a discovery that was made by Elizabeth Linnaeus, and Elizabeth Linnaeus is like the Linnaeus's daughter. Um, And when she was just 19 years old, she was like... um, a woman nineteen untrained in science, and she published a a legitimate scientific publication about the fact that, as dusk comes, nasturtium flowers seem to flicker, so they sort of emit light mm-hmm. and this was something that she identified and she shared with her father and then other scientists discussed and It wasn't really clear at the stage why they were glowing or flashing or flickering, how this was happening. Um, And people thought, you know, these plants are doing really, really cool things. Um, Over time, it's actually been established that the flashing effect doesn't happen from the flower. It happens from our own eyesight. So it's basically because these flowers are a deep orangey red color and the leaves are green, Our eyes are not super great at distinguishing some colours sometimes. Um, And as the light changes, you get different ability to see reds and greens in darker light. So once low light occurs, our ability to see colours obviously decreases. And then also if you see the flowers, I think from a certain angle, um, there's like a side part of your eye where there are not so many rods I want to say so there's one part of the eye that's better at seeing color and one part that is better at seeing um, black and white.
0: Yeah, I always forgot which one is if it's like the rods or the other ones that do the color, but do you have like pretty much color vision only very in the center of your eyesight? And even the color in your peripheral vision, a lot of it is sort of interpolated by your brain. So you, you don't physically see the color light waves from the sides and your brain makes that, but um, sometimes that can lead to like errors. And I imagine that is something similar going on here. Like,
1: Yeah, so I think there was... Um, so. Um, Elizabeth Linnaeus published this in, I think, 1760, so way, way back when. And then in the early 1900s, in 1914, there was a publication by um, F.A.W. Thomas, I think in Nature, actually, where this phenomenon of the the flashing um, nasturtiums, which is also called the Elizabeth Linnaeus phenomenon, was actually discover- described. And they say... In twilight, you see reds brighter than the greens, so you see these like red flowers against the green background, and the reds seem brighter. But then, as the image of the red flower moves from the edges of your retina, where you can't see reds, so you've got the rods and they're red blind, and then it moves to the fovea, eh, which is like more the center, I think, and that's where you can see the red. That that movement from like lack of seeing to seeing makes it appear like to flash suddenly. That's kind of where you get this, mm. like. So basically, yeah, as you said, it's your eyes not being able to really deal properly and, you know, your brain kind of making stuff up to be like, oh, yeah, 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 it's super bright, like flash, flash, flash. Um, Yeah, but this was something I'd not heard about before. I really want to go and plant a lot of nasturtiums now so I can watch them at twilight to see if they flash. Um, But I also really want to hear the next couple of episodes of the Flora and Fred's podcast because in this first episode – it talked a little bit about this phenomenon, but it also talked about the background of Elizabeth Linnaeus. So um, Judith actually had a guest on who had a more sociological background and was talking about how things would have been as a woman, as a like non-scientifically trained woman um, in those times and how the science would have been perceived and sort of how the system worked. But in future episodes, she's also going to talk about, um, you know, other things of nasturtium, where it gets its name, um, how you can eat it, um, Many other factors. I, I there's a list somewhere. I will I will link you to all to the podcast, and then of course later on she'll be talking about different plants as well. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about nasturtiums specifically, but also generally more fl- from Flora and Friends podcast. So yeah, that's the plant of the day, which is nasturtium. <laughs>
0: yeah, thank you so much. I'm also uh, I I have the podcast listed in my in my queue. I'm really looking forward to listening to this, and even even more so now. That you, I mean, you spoil it, uh, so, uh, some of the stuff, but in a good no, no, way, no, in a way I, that I, no, I want no. to know more.
1: I honestly, like, so what I mentioned was the flashing effect, but this first podcast was mostly about kind of the behind the scenes stuff of Elizabeth Linnea. So it was really this kind of social side. So it was completely like a different side that I wasn't expecting, which I really loved. Um, like the plant science was obviously there, but it was kind of the context of the plant science. And I would say again, it really fits in with our introduction theme of ASMR because like Judith has a really lovely voice. But also um, the idea is that you can listen to the podcast while you drink a tea. So she starts with some sort of really lovely kind of country sort of classical music. And you hear like the sound of teacups clinking. And it's like, welcome to, you know, tea time. We're with Flora and friends. And I mean, just go for that. It's,
0: Oh, that's a beautiful idea. In
1: this day, a like relaxing, educational, a nice walk through the garden, this is everything that you want in your life, honestly.
0: Perfect. I'm very much looking forward to that.
1: Diversity the
0: yeah, and this week it's my turn. Um, and you know me, I'm lazy. So I asked people to do my homework for me on Twitter, um, asking for people... Uh, that inspired them, um, that are not the classical like white men. And uh, I got many very cool suggestions. So my homework is actually not done only for this week, but for the upcoming weeks. Um, so thank you so much, everyone who participated. And uh, this week, I will start with a suggestion from Luis De Luna um, at Lunaraku on, on Twitter. And uh, they, they suggested Helia Bravo Hollis. Um, have you heard of her? no she um is a mexican botanist um if you clicked on on google on um uh, in 2014 i think um there was a google doodle in her honor on a 117th birthday uh, in 2017 actually um ah 2018 I'm getting my numbers almost correct today. <laughs> On the 30th of September of uh, 2018, it was 117th birthday, which if you are much quicker at math than I am, then you can calculate that she was born in 1901. Um, and she lived until 2001. Um, she died four days before her 100th birthday. Um, so a very long life and pretty much a whole life dedicated to to plants and specifically to succulents. Um, she grew up in uh, in Mexico in uh, yeah in the early 20th century, um, but she uh, she always excelled at school. Like already in primary school, uh, I read that she exceeded the uh, sort of the she she was such a great student that she was even granted recognition by the then president uh, Porfirio Diaz, um, which I find quite impressive because I have never heard of somebody getting presidential recognition in primary school um i mean amazing that's that's pretty outstanding so that's really cool um then um here's where my lack of history bites me a little bit um there was the mexican revolution happening and in 1914 her father was killed which was a big sort of distressed her entire family because back then it was um, about like loyalties to different parties or like different like players in the Mexican revolution. And her father was sort of on the wrong side as in the side that lost. And therefore um, her father was, was killed in in the Mexican revolution, but um, that didn't stop her to pursue her education. And she went on to, to work um, uh, to, to continue high school where uh, of all things like she, um, she shared a classroom with people like um, Frida Kahlo, who was in the same high school class as her, which I find like just a very weird coincidence in, the, in this case. But she was like, this, this high school and her class must have been a very special class because there were many um, brilliant personalities of Mexican culture sort of in the same school at the same time. Um, but back then, there wasn't really a way to study biology. Although she was really into plants, um, the university that she um, that she wanted to go to, the National Autonomous University of Mexico, or UNAM, um, they didn't have a biology degree at first. Um, so she started studying medicine. She was also pressured a little bit by her family. They were like, hey, medicine is like a, a good and solid profession, and you you are great at school, so do that. But she always wanted to do plant science um and uh then she transferred um to the college of science at the same university and there she could worked t- um together with her mentor Isaac Terrena, um who uh with whom she she had her first publications and um she create she was then asked to create the herbarium so the very first herbarium of the uh, on university um and uh, she was also commissioned with the study of the c- uh, cactaceae, um, which Cers. cactuses, yeah, cacti, I don't know. But the the spiky plants that are very sort of the defining plant of the Mexican landscape.
1: <laughs> Angry spiky
0: plants. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, that sort of... Put her on the road for for her passion in in plant science, and she was studying succulents um, f- uh, from from then on very extensively. She published one of the most important books on succulents. It's just called uh, Cacti of Mexico, or I think I like the tr- English translation is Mexican cactuses. Um, but it was like a. a a standard textbook for decades and it was then later like i think in the 80s it was like revamped and extended but um it really spent a long time in schools as a as a way to teach and she was um until her like until she was in her 80s she was still teaching at university she was really passionate about that um and uh, there's a quote that I would like to sort of finish this on um, where she said, like, I did my job with a sense of responsibility before the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM, with love, passion and courage. It was enjoyable research rather than a job. In spite of everything, I think that my work is still far from being satisfactory because the knowledge of the cacti is not finished. It is always being done. So even though she studied it her whole life, she still... Um, maybe sadly uh like with a sad eye recognizing that there's still so much more to be learned and she could not even like she could not finish the work on it but it's also it's also nice in a way that you know that there's still so much more to learn and so much more stuff to figure out about cacti so yeah that's uh helia bravo hollis one of the or the first female botanist um in mexico um who defined teaching uh, about succulents for decades um, from like the 19, I think the book was somewhere 1920s, 1930s until 1980s, 90s, when it was sort of revisioned a couple of times and extended even more. So hardly anything was revoked. It was like more extended from like an 800 page book to over 1,500 in the end about Mexican cacti. Amazing, very cool.
1: Have you got any cacti at home, Joram?
0: Uh, I don't think so. Maybe somewhere like very small ones. Um, we used to have some, but we killed them all by watering them. <laughs> Whoops. They just got, I mean, we we knew that you don't water cacti really, but you think like once a year, you're like, but, but I mean, it's been so long, they maybe need some water. And then you water them and they immediately rot and die. And, like, no, I wanted to do good for you and now you're dead.
1: I was dating somebody and they had a cacti at their house. And it, like, I was like, oh, this looks super dead. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's definitely dead. Like, it hasn't been watered since I've lived in this house and I've lived here for, like, over, you know, a year or something. And then I started watering it because I wanted to see. And it came back like the, the it was one of these kind of tall ones. And the the center part of the stem was like a little bit unhealthy and didn't really come back. But the top just started sprouting green again. It started growing upwards. Like it was really,
0: hmm.
1: I mean, that's kind of their purpose, right? Just to wait for the yeah. good times to come again.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. bias. It's a very short one for me today. Um, We've kind of discussed this a little bit before, but I wanted to bring it up again because it's basically been trending in the last week or so. So probably a lot of you have already seen this, but somebody on Twitter called Drew, at Drew Gray, Gray, um, put... I think, something originally saying, philosophy is flirtation with ideas, science is commitment to truth. And this was a a tweet in response to something that the MC Hammer had already tweeted, as in Hammer Time, MC Hammer. And MC Hammer replied to this statement that science is commitment to truth with this. And I quote, you bore us if science is a commitment to truth, shall we cite all the historical non-truths perpetuated by scientists? Of course not. It's not science versus philosophy, it's science and philosophy. Elevate your thinking, capital T, and consciousness, capital C. When you measure, include the measurer. And I think it's amazing because this has now got like 2.5 thousand likes and almost 20,000 retweets Um, no sorry 78,000 likes and you know 20,000 retweets Um, it's also Twitter so like in the the typical garbage fire that is Twitter the first reply is yeah I don't take my science cues from celebrities and then somebody immediately saying yeah really If, like, prove to me that scientists have said lies in the past, at which point people are like, here is all the list of things that scientists have (laughs) believed that are clearly not true. Um, So it is a hellfire of Twitter, and I don't encourage anybody to go on Twitter (laughs) unless they have to, because it will destroy you mentally, I believe. Um, But... This is something that has come up before with us. I think I mentioned it in the context of Angela Siney, a talk of hers I went to, which was discussing the very same concept, which is science is a search for truth. The idea of science is to make discoveries and to, you know, find objectivism like things that are objectively true out. But That doesn't mean that science as a study is truth, because science as a study, unfortunately, is done by scientists as incredibly flawed, biased human beings. And this to me is, I mean, I'm not taking all of my lifestyle advice from MC Hammer, nor my fashion advice, as it turns out, but... This idea of when you measure, include the measurer is very, very poignant. And like, this is something we have to talk about. And this is also why we always do the cognitive bias. It's why we came up with the idea of this segment on the show is because you cannot pretend that just because you're a scientist, you know, doctor, Dr. trained scientist, you are therefore a perfect human being. And, you know, what you produce is without your bias. So I I kind of just wanted to have that as a reminder that especially when we look at historical science, but still very much when we look at the science that we do today, people are always flawed. And it doesn't mean that all science is flawed. It just means that we have to do as much as we can to minimize those biases. And, you know, I'm not saying let's throw all of the science out. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like, it's just saying that. You know, we can't say everything is an absolute truth just because it has the word science associated with it. And this is especially true when we look back on what we have historically believed. Um, and again, with science, if you do have new evidence, you've got to take in that new evidence and change your opinions based on the new evidence. So, yeah, yeah. I I thought that was fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, science is, is, is a tool set and a mindset, but it's not. I would not equate it with truth because... There's so many things where we re- learn that the truth is different from what we thought at a certain point in time. So I think it's a very clever um, statement from MC Hammer. And also what it reminds me of is that I sometimes when I talk to STEM people, they like a certain kind of them has this STEM arrogance where they consider philosophy is just like talking BS about some ideas and you can't prove anything so it's worthless Um, and and they think like other like humanities and so on they are just like people getting paid to just like have pointless discussions and pointless chats and it's really not true Um, there's a lot that's like like in the philosophy of science uh, and people who like study philosophy what they can they can sort of add to the methodology of science i mean they're not adding actively to a measurement in arabidopsis but they measure they're adding to the overall concept of science how we do science how we can be sure about science um how we can approach it with our flaws um and and make and draw conclusions from results that we have and so on these are things that are also discussed in philosophy and therefore. Um, philosophy is not like a a useless exercise for people who like to talk it's it's like a very important (laughs) science like it's it's a very important part of of science as well so it's not even like uh, philosophy versus science it's maybe philosophy versus stem or rather like philosophy and stem that can complement each other um
1: (laughs) I mean, obviously, I disagree with everything Joram says, and I think that only mathematics is pure science. Physics, nope. Biology, nope. Even yeah. biology, definitely nope. Psychology <laughs> is the worst. Like,
0: psychology is like talking about feelings. Feelings don't even exist. You can't put like, a measuring on feelings, so they don't exist, and therefore, um, dealing with them is also just wasting taxpayer money.
1: I do quite like the idea of philosophy as flirtation with ideas. I quite enjoy that though. Like I mean <laughs> I I I'm not against the idea of science. The point of science is to discover truth. I like and again I'm not saying science is useless because people are flawed. I'm just saying be aware people are flawed when you interpret your science (laughs) you know put the two together don't throw both of them away
0: yeah absolutely
1: unfortunately people are always going to be flawed and even if we have machines as it turns out the people make the machines and the machines are also flawed
0: (laughs) (laughs) or then (laughs) when they spit out a lot of numbers then still people look at the numbers like no matter how many machines you put in there um
1: oh, I was more yeah, I was more thinking of like the AI we're now creating where it's like, Oh, oh yeah. look, that AI has turned out to be incredibly racist. What a surprise. Oh, the input was racist, who knew? Like the output was gonna be like racism amplified because that's how machines work like this kind of
0: just today i read an article about um uh, researchers looking at a hiring ai and we talked about this before um and where we talked about like how the hiring ai so it's an artificial intelligence system that's set up to screen applicants to a job and then sort of pre-select them or give additional advice on the selection process and then that influences this decision whether or not to hire someone um And this was a software that was trained, like that was used to do video interviews of a video call. And then it would um, assign personality ratings to the person being interviewed. And then if you look for somebody that's really extrovert, um, the software could tell you whether a person is on the extrovert scale or like rather extrovert or rather introvert and and things like that. Um, And they realized
1: draw a giant like smile on my face with lipstick like just going up my cheeks and towards my eye line
0: no you don't and even got to have to go as far as that like the, the the ai with like the same person in front of camera could be Giving out completely different readouts depending on how much light was on a person's face, whether they had dark skin or light skin, whether the background was sort of a mess or very clear, yeah. or whether do there we was wanna, a picture. Do we want
1: to go back a little bit to what you just said, whether they have dark skin or light skin?
0: Yeah, I mean, this was also racist. Like, um, it was racist, but it was also within the same race. You could be like dark skinned and had a negative rating if you just had sort of your computer light on you, and if you had like an additional light there, you would be sort of above the threshold of being hireable just based on the lightning ah. and, and they, they could show that like so many factors outside of the actual person would like push this AI in one direction or the other which yeah I mean it's to us it's not a big surprise but I mean these systems are in active use and um, by people who believe in these systems and that's a problem but uh yeah they they are very very much flawed and i would not trust an ai system for decisions like that i would trust them for many other things they can go do cool stuff but what anything would you that involves
1: people like raising your child choosing your outfits Cutting your hair, shaving your beard, face.
0: Now there's like very technical stuff. There's like new AI stuff, for example, to optimize audio quality, and like the AI picks up like on 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 bad sounds and reduces them. Yeah, exactly. Like very boring stuff, but there's also nothing that can go wrong there because in the the worst case, your audio just isn't getting better from the AI, Um, and it's not somebody who's not getting a job.
1: Sorry, I'm personally convinced that the the software that Yarm uses to regulate our voices. Deliberately makes my voice sound about fifty percent more shrill, but that's just because I can't acknowledge that I am just a shrill sounding person. I mean, obviously, when I hear myself speak, I sound lovely. I have dulcet tones, but when I hear the podcast, I, I can't listen back to our own podcast. I just. Yeah.
0: But there's no AI, as far as I know. Like, I'm using a web service, but I think they don't use any of the fancy AI stuff. But- I mean,
1: a few weeks back, I was complaining about how my voice just sounded so like shrill because I had to listen to find an excerpt for the the Instagram and like you messaged me saying that you deliberately upped the tone of my voice 10% to different like so people could hear the difference between like your lower tones and my higher tones and I was like I know Yoram I know it's a joke but at the same time I was like really hoping it was true and I was like really like (laughs) maybe it's true and maybe I don't sound like that in real life because that would be really a good thing for me (laughs) Um, yeah. One of our beloved friends once told me when I was sick and I had a, a husky, sick voice and kind of blocked nose that I sounded much sexier with that voice and should <laughs> stay sick forever. And I think I've taken that a little bit to
0: heart. Like, Oh, that's that's uh, mean.
1: <laughs> you you know who it was.
0: I I have a good idea who it was, yeah.
1: <laughs> Say the name. We can beep it out. It wasn't <laughs> It was <laughs> <laughs> This is where
0: Where the fun begins So I have one actual plant science fact uh, today (laughs) and two less plant science effects, facts, although in one of them a plant is a little bit part of it. Um, The first story is uh, something I found um, about a very interesting study. I had no idea about that it was going on uh, in Bangladesh. Um, Bangladesh is the first country that allows the growth of BT eggplant. So that's genetically modified eggplant that has from the bacillus turringensis um bacterium it has a gene inserted that expresses a protein that kills off a certain kind of insect and just um, like it's very to,
1: thin- like that's commonly used in other gm crops right
0: yeah yeah it's, i think it's one of the most used type of modification this do they say like bt cotton is i think the most well-known one mm-hmm. um and the idea is that you don't spray pesticides on the plant been when the plant is expressing a protein that kills a specific insect on its own Um, and therefore uh, when an insect comes and eats the parts of the plant then it eats the protein and it dies and that protects um, the plant and it works very well in cotton Um, that's why it's used um, extensively in many places around the world in cotton farming uh, and in Bangladesh, um, they are the first country to, al- to allow the use of that in eggplant. And they allowed that already in 2014. But first with a sort of trial period um, uh, with restrictions, so farmers couldn't sell the produce on regular markets and so on. Um, because they wanted to see if it's like, if it if it works, if it's safe and so on. Um, but then in 2016, 2017, um, they extended the program. Farmers were allowed to sell the, the products on regular markets and also more farmers could just buy the seeds. Um, and now there have been two studies published that looked at the impact of um, the BT eggplant on these farmers. And these farmers are mostly small scale farmers um, with very small plots, so not the sort of Big industrial type of farming that we find in Europe or the United States, um, and uh, they um, the the question always is like, do GMO actually benefit the farmers? The the companies that make the GMO they always say like, yeah, of course. And the the critical like NGOs often um, say like, no. If you calculate everything together, it's actually worse in some way. They say and like now- not only
1: no, but also suicides increase when there's GMOs. Like that's the dominant.
0: Yeah, yeah, they say like they the people get dependent on the crop. They can't like uh, compete anymore, but they have to pay a high price to get the seeds. And often then there's also the the idea that like the main idea of the GM crops is that you don't use pesticides anymore because the plant itself is toxic to the bugs. Um, but then there are some studies uh, or like some some. Things published by NGOs, I have actually no idea if it's like peer-reviewed studies, but they say like, look, a pesticide use is actually not decreasing that much, Um, so you have sort of the GM crop plus the pesticide, so it doesn't really help in that respect. And so, there are now two studies that looked at these things on a larger scale. They did uh, randomized control trials um, and they looked at um, like net uh, profits, so including um, like paying for the seeds paying for pesticides how much money they could get for their crops on the market sort of on a per unit measure but also in a total measure so how much money they could get per harvest season and so on um, and they found that there were only positive effects um, they they found that the uh, BT eggplant increased yields by 51% it reduced pesticide co- costs by 37.5% Um the the farmers had more output that was sold at a higher price. They had to throw away less plants because you have to imagine before when they were spraying them, um, they they gave the numbers that sometimes they had to spray weekly and they would still get about 40% of the plants infected with this um, fruit worm that would bore into the fruit and destroy the the, the harvest. So even despite spraying a lot, like every week they would spray their fields and they would still lose 40% of their harvest to the bugs. Um, And... That was stopped with the with the BT eggplants. Um, they had a higher net revenue, so 128 percent increase in revenue, and also because they used smaller quantities of pesticides, they had reduced effects on their own health uh, by the pesticides. Mm-hmm. So um, the um, they had here, they said like farmers who had pre-existing chronic conditions consistent with pesticide poisoning. So people who were already sick because they. Sp- sprayed pesticides throughout their their life on the on the crops um, they had 11.5 percent less um, were less likely to report conditions linked to pesticide poisoning so they were recovering to some extent um, from that and of course they also wouldn't have to pay for medical expenses so there's like this whole set of measurements that they looked at and in all of them it was like an upwards movement um, for them Uh, and uh, another thing that I want to mention here, which is important, is that the plants were developed as a pu- public-private partnership. So there's not like a big buyer crop science that's making the plants and selling them now. But it was co- together with the Bangladeshi government that they developed that. And there's now a, a government agency that's in, in charge of selling the seeds to the farmers. And they do that at a very low price. Um, so that's, yeah, it's it's also not a factor now that nowadays like the, the amazing miracle crops but they're very, very expensive, and there's sort of the conventional old crops that are very cheap. But it's also like the government agency makes sure that um, the the GM seeds are also very accessible to these small-scale farmers. So overall, it's like a massive net increase, and I found that quite interesting because yeah, I I heard many arguments from both sides about this, and when you read a study that's done by by a crop science, and you read a study that's done by Greenpeace, to me they hold a similar level of trustworthiness, which is not a lot. Um, And these two are peer-reviewed, published uh, studies that look at that and um, therefore, to me, quite interesting.
1: I mean, obviously, in the context of MC Hammer, we must remember that Yoram is a raging GM addict (laughs) (laughs) who… doesn't eat a food unless it's gm he's paid by big Monsanto, and that's
0: why i'm so very very thin because in germany you can't really get gm food and so i'm just like most of the day well you would have I'm- to
1: eat the food that was planned for the pigs right like that's kind of
0: <laughs> yeah and even there it's it, it's hard like i i have a stash from like arab gm arabidopsis no, seeds no, that i took <laughs> from the lab from and i'm just eating i'm just eating arabidopsis seeds for the high oil content and that's like what's keeping me alive so i have something that's genetically modified in my body I Like it's mostly GFP seeds, but
1: <laughs> but I think you would be much more enthusiastic about the potential for G um, to be a force absolutely. for good than definitely than your average person in Germany or in probably in Europe, I would
0: say. No, absolutely. You're but I'm also a fan it. of of looking at these studies like when they're peer reviewed. Like,
1: yeah, I do. I mean, I do like that this also looked at small what's it called smallholder farms um, because that's kind of what we should be caring about. These are people who are like need to be improving their
0: yeah.
1: ability to get money and um, food security. So
0: yeah. There's also the biggest potential to to have gains there because many sort of industrial farms they have optimized many things. And so if you have a new crop variety that's just in one one of the qualities five percent better, that's just like a very small increase. But with these small subsidence farming, um they are often non-optimal in many regards. And so if you bring in something that's like
1: that's that's true but often also the problem is that the trials for testing the new products can be done under more optimal conditions um that don't for example take into account the fact that these farmers don't have the same access to irrigation and fertilization so then you know they if they do sell the product as you know 90 percent increase in in yield and that's only when you have you know perfect rain fed conditions in central germany that's obviously not going to work as well if you have it in a hotter drier place you know so yes and no like i think there's there there is a big problem with with larger scale breeding where sometimes this i mean it's, it's definitely not it's definitely being looked at more these days but like if you're not looking closely into the actual local areas where the seeds will be used you can get these major pushbacks and problems
0: absolutely that's also in 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 this example here they were working with local locally grown varieties that were breeding into the modified lines so they would get optimized locally adapted lines um that are very close to the to the optimum for the growing conditions on site um yeah because i mean that wouldn't work if like if if we here in brandenburg would set up and create an eggplant variety that's genetically modified and then would sell it to bangladesh and be like here this solves your problems that wouldn't work because they they have different soil different climate different types of of agriculture um that would just not work out at all so that's really important to to have the the local expertise involved in the creation of these lines
1: um i have <laughs> a fact i have a fact that's not an actual plant fact Yep. But through the power of conspiracy theories, I can make it a plant fact.
0: Ah, yeah, that's, that's, that sounds good. What do you think? That's exactly what we need these days.
1: <laughs> okay, so it's kind of um, in reference to something that's come up a few times recently on the show. I think, Yaram you first discussed the fact that platypuses are now luminescent. So if you shine the right kind of light on a platypus, it will glow. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of one of the earliest discoveries a few months back. Um, everybody thought, "Wow, that's amazing!" But then, on the other hand, platypuses are super freaking weird. They're like the reject of all other animals in the world, and they're it's, it's not really surprising that a platypus can, can glow. If you told me that a platypus can like, I don't know, shoot glitter out of its eyes, or you know, fly in the month of February, I'd be like. Okay, it's not expected but like also it's a platypus. That seems fair. Like <laughs> and also I mean they they're like super elusive. You don't see them around much. So like what a platypus is doing in its own times is frankly nobody's business and probably still to be discovered. Anyway, I digress. Um, The recent discovery now is a publication that came out in scientific reports. So after the platypus was found to be glowing, it was found that a whole lot of animals are glowing just quietly in their own time. If you shine the right light on them, they will emit another kind of light, you know, a nice green or purple or blue you know, some sort of pleasant glowy color. So there was a publication that came out in scientific reports by Eric Olson and colleagues. This was um, just a few weeks ago, February 2021. And it is vivid biofluorescence discovered in the nocturnal spring hair. Uh Pepepe day. Pepepe day. Um, so I'm going to just show the link to Yoram just so he can go and check that out. Yoram. Go. Go to the spring hair. Go, go. Are you
0: go, going? Teacher,
1: go. Go faster. Go, go gadgets. So what I want you to do is like... Sk- sk- Scan all the way down we want to be on figure f- three and I want you to like go and look at the, the spring hair in the bottom right corner and really stare into its eyes and I, I encourage all of our listeners to pause the podcast and just pop on over to this I think it's open access um journal um that's a zombie rabbit that's not great <laughs> it has cold dead eyes and unfortunately for this little spring hair the biofluorescence is a kind of blood red color I would say and it has blood red, not evenly throughout its fur, but kind of in what can only be described as bloody splotches across its fur. So <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I, would, I would have said it's like some cool like um, fluorescent camouflage pattern or like a weird zebra print or something like that. But yeah, I mean, blood works as well <laughs> because it's, it's it's bright red.
1: And look at its eyes because it's, it's a specimen from a museum, right? So it's already been um, like stuffed, I guess. So it has this kind of glassy, creepy, cloudy eyes that look like – I mean, I've been watching The Walking Dead again recently, so this might be slightly influencing. (laughs) Again, let's go back to MC Hammer and not take (laughs) – not separate the science from the scientist. Um, So there's this paper. They're discussing this new discovery. It glows under UV light. Great. But it glows in really weird patches. And in the image they have like maybe – I don't know – six or seven different of these hairs and they are not really consistently glowing so one of them has basically red all over and then the other one just has small patches and it's not really clear and they're also not really clear how whether the hair managed to get this this glow from um so they identify the the substances that are responsible for that, but they're not really sure where it comes from ultimately. And they do they do mention that they tried to wash. I think, let me see if I can find the place in the paper. They said that it wasn't easy to remove. Washing the hair or fur with Dawn dish soap did not remove or diminish fluorescence or result in a transfer of the fluorescence. So that, I think, um, made them believe that it was, and it was also.
0: <laughs> I just imagine now the scientist with his taxidermed animal, um, in a bucket and like pouring in a dish soap and it's just like giving like- it a good scrub and it's like all foamy and I mean, animals always look weird when they when they're wet but then it's like a taxidermied animal, that's like dripping wet <laughs> and then you're shining the light on it it's, oh still fluorescing.
1: <laughs> yeah. so... <laughs> I think um, they're not really sure how it got the fluorescence. They tried to wash it. Presumably the grad students tried to wash it. Um, They they said that, I mean, some of the specimens were from 1905, which is like, what, 120 years ago now. Um, But that seems to be maybe one of the reasons that some of them have less vivid biofluorescence than, that, you know, maybe it degrades slightly over time. Mm -hmm. um they think so it looks like what they're seeing is porphyrins which sort of are related to the heme biosynthesis pathway so that's kind of a way that it could be made but it's not super super clear
0: yeah
1: so my conspiracy theory is that it's pretty much like our rat and has just eaten a plant and rubbed it all over its fur That's what I'm going to go with. I think there's nothing to back that up. And I think we actually need a jingle for when I say something that is so scientifically inaccurate, just to not take away from the rest of the podcast where we're not always accurate, but we at least try. Like, I want it to be clear that at this point, I'm not trying. My conspiracy theory, I want to put it down. I want to bet on it, is that this spring hair is cheating and that it's licked itself with some sort of plant. And that's why it's fluorescing and i should also admit that i didn't read the full article so it might be possible that the fluorescence can't even produce by plant pathways but i'm still going to stick by my unscientific guns
0: i mean if if the paper proves that your conspiracy theory is wrong that just means that the paper was bought by big bunny. <laughs> big animal
1: <laughs> yeah big bunny is nice yeah
0: um and they tr- just try to hide the truth and you you know the truth and that's the plant that it's all plants sap.
1: Yeah, I think I think these porphyrins, I'm not sure that we can get those implants. So I think that probably makes my conspiracy theory um, unlikely. But at the same time, it is a conspiracy theory. And I think that means I should just ignore any facts that go against my theory. And
0: absolutely anything that goes against the theory just makes it stronger because it shows that there's people trying to hide the truth.
1: Exactly. Um, so I'm just kinda have a quick look here. I can't really tell. So it has like these it's it's called europorphyrin, um, and heptacarboxylporphyrin. And the problem is I can't tell immediately if that's like there are kind of pathways that make the heme in in animals, and I think there's like different pathways which kind of end up with like chlorophylls and stuff like that, which are related in plants, if that's right. Um, and I can't tell if what they have here on their um hair if it's something that is obviously specific to plants i think you would be a- to animal. sorry i think you would be able to tell because i think there are different enzymatic pathways but i can't tell um so if anybody in our audience does know more about this and has actually bothered to read the full article and look into it let me know because i i want my conspiracy theory to be supported and if you tell me that it's not supported i'm going to ignore you <laughs> so, just tell me I'm right. No, I'm actually really curious about this now and I I'm terrible at metabolic pathways, like just seriously.
0: Yeah, they 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 can be a pain. <laughs> um I have uh something that made the rounds on Twitter, so maybe some of our listeners might have heard that already. Um if you imagine an iceberg, Tegan, how would you draw it in sort of ter- terms of like the shape? And sort of, what do you see above the water, what do you see under the water, and how is it oriented?
1: I'm going to disappoint you here and say that I've already seen this. And Oh, no! <laughs> I spent some of my time this morning that definitely wasn't my time, my working hours, um, drawing different shaped icebergs and seeing how they float, including a penguin and a dinosaur shaped iceberg.
0: Yeah, I also went through all kinds of different shapes. So the the story here is that somebody uh, wrote a tweet, Megan Thompson Munson wrote a tweet at Glacial Mag, um, where she complained, or where they complained that very often when you see illustrations using icebergs, I mean, it's very often used as like, we only see the tip of the iceberg, there's so much more below the water, like so much unknown. Um they always draw them in states that they definitely would not be floating in. Um, very often you have sort of, if you imagine a drop-shaped um, iceberg, um, you sort of see the pointy bit um, above the water, like 10%, and then you have like the big drop shape below that. But if an iceberg would be like that in the water, it would immediately turn 90 degrees and sort of lay on its side because that's more a more stable position for, for the iceberg. Um, and so... Um, Megan Thompson Monson is advocating for more realistic depictions of icebergs in schematics, and somebody else. Um, um, uh, I think, do I find their name here? Um, it's on ice. Uh, it, uh, it's called Iceberger. I am on Joshdata.me. Um, they created a little app where you can draw your own iceberg and see how it would float. So if you want to do an iceberg illustration here is where you get your inspiration and they say that this is not like uh physically a hundred percent correct um because like there is some other like factors in there but it's very close and therefore um a good way to start at least in it and if you sort of draw the standard drop shaped iceberg here it will just like turn and flop on its side um yeah. And it also reminds me of like, I, w- I went, once went to Iceland and there is like this ice lagoon where you have icebergs coming from the glacier and floating towards the sea. And there's sort of this blue lagoon where you can see them all. And while we were there, there was like a big iceberg where a piece broke off and then like the entire thing flipped. And it was such a surreal thing to see because...
1: it's amazing. Yeah.
0: It's a massive structure. And suddenly everything you saw that was above water flips over below the water and all of the underwater ice suddenly becomes visible and it makes like a big noise and waves and everything it's like really really amazing to see um and that's what i had to to think about whenever i was drawing the icebergs here i was like i want to see them spin and float (laughs) like i want to have the final experience again like it would be a cool addition in like version two of this that you could like chop off bits of it and then see how it reorientates itself into another stable position oh that would be yeah.
1: super cool yeah I didn't even think of that
0: yeah so that's like a good half an hour that you can spend drawing icebergs <laughs> yeah. um, we're linking to that also like everything in the show notes
1: okay guys I just made Joram like pause the podcast for five minutes while I try to look in to see where this is to see if Europorphorin again which is the glowy thing on the animal the spring hair could be found in plants and maybe yes um, it looks like there is at least a europorphyrinogen decarboxylase enzyme, um, which is involved in the biosynthetic pathway of chlorophyll and heme in plants, which implies it's not anything animal specific. I mean, if if there's an enzyme to decarboxylase the europorphyrinogen, there's <laughs> there's presumably the europorphyrinogen itself to be decarboxylated, right? Right.
0: Probably, yeah.
1: All right, I maintain my conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory upheld until further notice. It's all plants. The plants are glowing and the animals are using it. Just like those nasty rats that eat the poisonous plants.
0: Can we now talk about something else, Tegan?
1: <laughs> no, I'm obsessed with this now. <laughs> I refuse. Don't you think it's a... Oh, there's something called vampire plants. Don't you think it's a really good um, conspiracy theory on...
0: For like two people that care about this, yeah, they will be really, really into it. Into it, I think. For most people, no. You're,
1: um, you're making you're making it sound like you don't care about it.
0: I can neither confirm nor deny that. I will be like one of the government sources that are cited in in conspiracy theories, and I like look, they're not denying it, so it's true.
1: <laughs> Part of the reason I am obsessing about this is because I'm concerned that I should know about this already. Like, I studied chloroplast development but I never really bothered to understand how chlorophyll itself was made.
0: And now I'm certainly uh,
1: concerned that I should know that uroporphorin was there in that pathway.
0: I worked in a chlorophyll biosynthesis lab for uh, half a year or so and was working with one step of chlorophyll biosynthesis. And I can tell you that even working there is like 11 or 12 step process with many things that sound very similar, because they like you have like this very, very big structure of a molecule that slowly becomes uh, like a heme or a chlorophyll, and there's like small modifications made. So all of the intermediate steps they almost sound the same because it's literally just like one egg yeah. group that's modified. Um,
1: and on that, <laughs> on that topic, I've just been like explaining how excited I am that you're a porphyrin again is in plants, but actually the animal didn't have europorphyrin again it had europorphyrin. and i don't even know how or if that's different i don't understand i just saw something where it's like uroporphorin and then it had it in brackets again so it's like is the, again just like an optional addition that you can put if you want why is science so confusing sometimes all right, sorry. We should carry on, Jaron, with your fascinating no, facts that I mean, are apparently cooler
0: than my conspiracy theory. I mean, technically, it would be your fact now that's coming.
1: Um, so, I have something else that is plant related that I found actually on the Q Garden website. So, Q.org, www.q.org. And, it and would it's publish- Q
0: like K E W, and that's the letter Q just that's a good point to avoid confusion
1: um this is an audio medium the article kind of relates to something that we've been talking about before on the podcast so that's why it kind of piqued my interest and i think last week or a couple of weeks ago we were talking about acacia yoram had acacia as one of his favorite plants and i was really smug about the fact that australia got to keep the name acacia even though it really shouldn't like The acacias in Africa were originally named acacias, so according to the standard rules that we use, they would keep acacia. Um, But now it looks like this problem has come up again with another species. Um, In this case, it's sweet potato. So sweet potato belongs to the genus Ipomoea. Ipomoea, I'm not sure how you really say that, which is the morning glory genus. Um, So it has these kind of, you've probably seen them around. It's also quite a common garden plant um, with sort of beautiful purple flowers. It's kind of a creeping vine, dark green leaves. Um, Very lovely looking. But as with many things, modern science has ruined everything. It looks like basically they found out the Ipomoea um, genus is a bit too diverse and probably needs to be split up into several genesis geni in any case yeah so um the problem here is that they would then like sweet potato which is a really common product would then ultimately have to change its names. So um, if the split is kind of done in the proper way, it sounds like sweet potato would lose its genus name and would have to change. And that would also have a lot of associated costs. So anybody with sweet potato products would potentially have to change those names. Um, and in case you didn't know, sweet potato is actually really, really important as a food crop. So for I think for a lot of us, it's just kind of a a special edition At the end of the year thanksgiving associated um but it's actually the seventh most important food crop in the world so really important and also really important for sort of food security um because obviously like different from a cereal so they had basically a petition and there was a publication in a journal called taxon that came out in december 2020 that was kind of discussing um if we should change the name and how it should be changed and yeah this this thing in Q was basically appealing to the concept of not changing the name of Sweet Potato.
0: Hmm.
1: Interesting. It's kind of it's kind of a weird thing. What would you
0: name sweet potato if you would have to give it a new name?
1: I I just how would I even answer that, Yerm? I think you would already get something, right? Like there would be somebody else who has precedent over
0: Tegan. Yeah, but imagine that wouldn't be the case. Like, all of them die in a horrible accident. Jesus Christ. And now it's on you. You're, like, the next in command in the naming of sweet potatoes. But, I, I mean, I'm not... F- it's like you're the dedicated survivor in the d- sweet potato naming scheme.
1: I mean, it's not like I'm giving sweet potato a common name. That would be kind of fun. But I'm just giving it a scientific genus name, which is definitely... I mean, it would have to be something clever and Greek or, like... Latin or Greek-sounding Latin. I didn't Latin. forget that I
0: asked you. <laughs>
1: off. <laughs> wow. Super rude. Yoram, how about you? <laughs> let's not go with sweet potato. Okay, so I've got a lima bean, and everybody's died in the world. You're the only survivor left, and you have to give a scientific name to lima bean. Go! Yeah,
0: like my number one priority after like everybody is dead, I'm like, okay, let's rename the bean.
1: <laughs> I also don't think I could pick a lima bean out of a crowd of other beans. Like, I'm not super confident. I know a chickpea if I see it. I think I could probably pick a fava bean, but. I mean, the black ones are obviously black, so that's helpful that their names are just black beans. Um, otherwise, it gets a little bit hazy, honestly.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, that's, maybe it's good that we both are not in charge of naming things. I have a follow-up from last week. Where last week when we recorded, there was the thing landing on the other thing. Um, and now wow. there have been like some follow-up stories on Perseverance landing on Mars, um, and there's one particular that I quite liked because there have been like many secret messages um, in and around the lander. Um, the most, the, the one that um, got most of the attention was the secret message encoded in the parachute. It had like a very particular pattern of oh, red and no. white stripes.
1: It was something super lame. It was Uh, like...
0: It was the motto of the Jet Propulsion Lab and then the coordinates. We
1: persevere or we dominate or something stupid. Yeah, I
0: think it's do do great things or something like that. Um, They're mighty things. They're mighty things. And then the coordinates, uh, um, the GPS coordinates to... Um, the Jet Propulsion Lab uh, in the United States and caught it in a parachute and um, people on Twitter when these first mes- uh, images came out they were deciphering that very quickly um, and having a blast with it um, that was fun but what I quite li- uh, liked and what I wanted to talk today about is uh, about a blog post um, from the person who designed the calibration target for the cameras so um to get accurate image readings from 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 Mars from the cameras, you have to calibrate them so that they to make sure that they actually depict the right colors and the right gray scales So sort of the whole dynamic range of the sensor has to be calibrated against some target and if you are far away on a planet where you don't know what the colors really are, you have to bring your own calibration standard and that's what this thing is. Um, I put a picture of that in in, in the show notes um, but you can also see it in the blog article and it's like a little, um brass disc so in 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 the middle of it is a thing sticking out it's called a gnomon or maybe a nomon i don't know if the g is silent or not Um, i don't
1: think that word means anything though
0: it's the name for the part of a sundial that casts a shadow um so it's probably greek uh and um, the idea is that you have in this calibration target, you have like concentric circles in white, black, white, and gray. Um, and then you have the gnomon or gnomon in there that casts a shadow. And that helps you to calibrate at the same time the camera for things that are exposed in the light and things that are in shadow. Um, and that's why this this like put protruding little bit is important and then there's like colored dots all around it that sort of reflect um the different color dynamic ranges of the sensor all of that it's like very technical and interesting to see um how, how that works um and how the cameras use that but embellish as uh, sort of embellishments on this um thing uh, is like a whole set of images and and tails so Um, Starting from sort of the seven o'clock position on on this dial, you have um, Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars orbiting the sun as like a little uh, depiction showing the positions of these planets relative to one another during the time of the launch window in July 2020, with Mars being in its approximate position for the time of the landing this February. Um, Then after that, and that's why I'm talking about it on a biology podcast now, there's a DNA strand um, that symbolizes the emergence of life on Earth. Um, Then there's a cyanobacterium that uh, symbolizes the early proliferation of microorganisms on Earth and possibly Mars. Then there's a fern, this makes it like a plant fact, and that symbolizes the green plants spreading across Earth. Then you have... (laughs) And there's a
1: dinosaur. Everybody knows that dinosaurs love plants, so that's also a plant fact. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's two people waving. Those people are definitely waving at their favourite orchid, which brings (laughs) it back to plants again. And finally, there's a rocket ship. And I don't even know how to make that about plants. Oh, as we all know, people love to spend, send Arabidopsis into space. Plant
0: fact. Plant <laughs> yes, fact. Yeah, with the humans, it's interesting because when we send a pi- the Pioneer spacecraft in the sem- 1970s uh, out into Earth, I mean, we send like a, a mixtape of our favorite music together with like a dick pic of us into space. To wo- Sorry,
1: what now? <laughs> I think you'd have to be... um. <laughs>
0: I mean, you know, like the Pioneer spacecraft, it was this this plan where we had like etched on a gold disc. We had um, a I selection I feel like it was music.
1: Leonardo's man though. It was this man with the arm outstretched. It wasn't just like a close no, no, up of like, genitalia.
0: T- 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 no, there was like two, like uh, sort of a biological s- schematic of a man and a woman um, and the man was w- waving there. Um, then on Voyager, another spacecraft, they had a similar uh, etching and there the woman was waving. And so on um perseverance on this embellishment both uh, the man and the the woman on this um embellishment are waving that's why both i just don't
1: understand how you've mentioned the the dick pic where does the dick pic come into it
0: i mean there's a naked dude on it like you send like a a mixed like some music and a picture of a naked dude into space to another civilization it's like
1: (laughs) you've basically like written a an important essay about how it's basically just Twit, uh, Bumble or Tinder <laughs> yeah, but for months. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, okay, um, back to the podcast. Um, this looks really cool. It it has this ability to look this. What is it called? The cali- primary calibration target. It looks both really retro and really futuristic at the same time. So it has that kind of early TV sci-fi vibe to it. I think.
0: And like, do you know why? Um, because the the font that they use there that, that it says two worlds, one beginning on it. Um, they say like look it's a it's a font that it shows that it doesn't have any hard edges and it looks friendly but it's also the font that's used in 2001 a space odyssey and several other science fiction movies um from <laughs> the 70s sort of that's why it gets the, the
1: people th- who made it were just geeking out so hard like just you could they like designed this and they're like like all of the in-jokes it's amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean the the uh, previous rover it had um on its tracks uh, on on its wheels it would pr- imprint morse code on on the mars soil that would also spell out a message and they made like f- since they s- started sending out spacecraft um they were having all of these like in jokes and all of this nerdy stuff. Um, there's one last thing I want to talk about, about the, um, the rocket on there. Like, first of all, they said, like, they made a sort of cartoon rocket, even though it's unrealistic, but they didn't want it to look like a missile um, um, because, like, space rockets sort of look also menacing. So they, they opted for um, sort of...
1: F- I mean, honestly, this looks like one of those creepy squids you find in the deep depths of the ocean. So I wouldn't say it's not menacing. <laughs> but
0: but it doesn't look notice, like it's going to blow up. Did you notice the direction it's flying on the, on the plaque?
1: Towards the red bit,
0: yeah, from the blue bit, it's flying from the blue planet to the red planet, um, <laughs> which I think somebody must have felt very, very clever when they. I'm going to use
1: an adjective here, and you're going to have to beep it out. But my adjective is. <laughs> 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 and I think you should leave all of that in, but beep out the. Everybody
0: <laughs> can guess what the word was.
1: Seriously, some self pleasure involved <laughs> in the creation of this, I would say.
0: <laughs> yeah. amazing
1: um, can I add something onto this my friend recently sent around that um, Percy the Mars Rover has a Twitter account it's obviously not the real Mars Roger, Rover and it's not necessarily science um, but you can go and follow what Perseverance aka Percy Rover is doing on Twitter and it's, it's kind of fun
0: that was my last fact for today do you have something
1: I have something which is, again, sort of plant-related. Um, so the article itself comes from Plus One. It was published in February this year, and I think I originally saw it via IFL Science. And it's about a kind of froggy that um, develops in a tadpole and then rapidly changes houses between its stages of development so i don't know if i've talked about this before but there are bromeliad plants do you know what a bromeliad plant is here no so it's kind of this
0: <laughs> i'm a very good plant science blogger <laughs> like i've heard the word but i have no idea what it looks like and what it does like i like i know about brome ah bromeliad we talked about this like uh it's a pineapple or is it the ones that look like pineapple and are not I mean, that's like actually...
1: Pineapple? So, yeah, like brom- the, the family, I think, is um, bromelaceae and pineapple is included. But that's actually a really great way. I was trying to think of how to explain it. But the, the top of a pineapple, the crown of a pineapple is probably a good thing to think of. Imagine that crown and then you kind of pick out the middle spike. So, you basically have these kind of spikes and a hole in the middle. And these bromeliad plants... Um, grow in rainforests they're often epiphytes which means they cling onto trees so there's kind of like the head of a pineapple a little crown sticking up on a tree somewhere and in the center bit of the crown um, where we've pulled out those spikes there's a hollow section and in a rainforest what's going to happen it's going to rain and those hollow sections end up collecting water and this water can become an entire ecosystem. So you get like small insects, especially the larva of insects growing there. But you also get things like frogs that like develop as tadpoles in there. And, you know, you get like the droppings from the frog, which is feeding some other insect, And there's bacteria living there. It's, it's like a small world inside itself, which is just super fascinating to me. I mean, we know that plants already do everything, but... This plant is basically just existing and being the entire universe for the things that live inside it, which is beautiful. Um, But anyway, the discovery I want to talk about today is this um, frog species, which is called, I'm going to try, um, Boccher manohyler astartia. Say that five times fast. Anyway, basically, guys, it's a frog. It's a tree frog, and I can't even say the common name. It's Paranapias caba tree frog mm-hmm. anyway it's a frog that's found in the brazilian atlantic forest and scientists had already realized that the tadpole of this frog develops within inside these bromeliads so they're called bromeliad tanks which is the part the watery part um, inside the bromeliad and they they found that the the, the frogs came and laid their eggs and the tadpoles started developing but they could never find tadpoles beyond a certain life stage. So they got bigger and bigger and bigger and then they just like disappeared. Like there was, they're checking all their bromeliads around, like hanging on trees, different parts of trees in the forest. They can't find bigger frogs. Um, or bigger tadpoles before they become full frogs. And it's not like those tadpoles were at the stage where they could metamorphosize and become frogs. They were still too small. So they're just like, what's happening? Um, And now they have found that in nearby rivers, the larger versions of those tadpoles can be found. So the basic hypothesis, they haven't seen direct evidence of the tadpoles leaping but the basic hypothesis is that the tadpoles grow up until a certain life stage in the bromeliads and then maybe they get too big maybe a lot of rain falls and like washes them out um or just stimulates them to start jumping and they make a huge leap of faith a literal one and fly out of their bromeliad tank optimistically hit a river (laughs) don't go squash on the ground. I mean, tadpoles have got a pretty good ability to like flop around. So I think if it landed a bit off the river, it would be able to flail its way into the river in a good scenario um, and then continue their development in the river and then become frogs and then start the whole life cycle again and you know make more eggs into these bromeliad tanks. So this is basically the first description of this kind of reproductive lifestyle where – there's a little bit of reproduction in in the tank, and then while still in the tadpole stage, the things like full on leap yeah. out or or get flushed out, or I mean, we don't know yet, but it's quite a big journey to make. It's quite cool, right?
0: Yeah, it it, it really is uh, it is really cool. I just have this like it, maybe it's still coming from the sci fi topic from 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 before, like you would if you would just describe it as, as like there's a plant and inside the plant you have like the whole ecosystem, all of these things going through different life stages and so on. This sounds so out of this world when, I mean, we have that here quite obviously, but uh, we can only like, we can anyway only imagine what we know from, from Earth when we think about non-Earth stuff. But to me, like it really sounds like science fiction, like a weird alien planet where you have that. And then especially with the the jumping out and wiggling its way, Towards the source and hoping to find it um, yeah really really cool stuff
1: yeah, I think that's also like one of my um, I mean I don't I don't actually hate space but it's always my my wish that people were more fascinated about the amazing incredible things that are happening on earth like this is just really cool <laughs> <coughs> Cat fact. So neither of us brought a cat fact today. Um, But mine is at least about something which has pointy ears, which is maybe helpful. Um, So mine is a kangaroo fact today. Um, You guys might have seen this already. I think I saw it in the nature briefing originally. But it's a discovery of the oldest rock art um, in Australia, which is 17,000 years old, which is just insanely insanely old um and this is rock art of a kangaroo um they've kind of shown i'll put a link to the article they've kind of show the what you can see now and then also what they think the kangaroo would have looked like and the kangaroo is kind of standing up on its hind leg and it looks like it's like kind of trying to fight people it's like hey hey you want to go you want to have a go um so it's a very impressive kangaroo rock art, not just because it's so old, but also because it's feisty as hell. Um, but what I thought was really cool about this is that it's, it's really difficult to date the age of these rock arts sometimes because normally with kind of these ancient like carbon dating methods, we rely on the presence of organic material, so stuff that's come from plants or animals. But with these really old rock Arts, they're actually just using kind of oak like, like stones and stuff so there's not organic material in there so it makes it difficult to um to date so what i found really interesting was that in order to radiocarbon date them they they used the presence of mud wasp nests kind of on top of and underneath where the drawings were to work out in which time period this had been drawn so like it's you know before the stuff that's on top of it and after the stuff that's kind of underneath it in lower layers um
0: uh-huh.
1: i just thought it was like kind of a really cool like hack to get around yeah. the problem of not being able to date these inorganic material
0: yeah yeah really cool yeah, it's a shame that they didn't write like a proper date back then. Sort of like 7,000 <laughs> years before Christ would be a good date to write
1: <laughs> 7,000 years before you idiots who are discovering us because apparently it's all relative to you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so this is, um, I think, the oldest thing that's been discovered in Australia, specifically the 17,000 years. But we've mentioned before other really ancient arts. Um, I think we already brought up the one in South Africa that was like that hashtag, basically. And that's 70,000 years old. And there's also been like a 45, 50,000 year old depiction of a pig um, in Sulawesi in Indonesia that's been found as well. So um, it's not the oldest thing ever, but it's pretty freaking impressive. And you should go and take a gander at this kangaroo because it has fight in it.
0: Um, so yeah, that's all that we have today. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at PlantsPipettes.
1: Um, On Instagram and Facebook, there's me, it's at Plants and Pipettes.
0: You can also go to our website, that's plantsandpipettes.com, where we publish once or twice per week um, articles about the world of plant science. Uh, This week, you wrote about lettuces and which lettuce we would pick, uh, we would rather pick. Um, the more like the fresh green one or the fermented, smelly, rotten kind.
1: Yeah, more specifically it's an experiment where they showed that by giving a kind of high pulse of light in the week before you pick a lettuce, you can actually extend its shelf life for almost a week, which is quite, you know, impressive I would say. Um but yeah, it does include a rating scale of lettuces where one is fresh and crisp and green and vibrant and nine is not only fermented smelling but also the term leaking liquid comes up so yeah (laughs) unsurprisingly when we polled people on instagram almost no not even almost it was ubiquitously chosen everybody went with the fresh lettuce so big shock there
0: yeah it's not like cheese where somebody are some people are actually into the sort of smelly bit of it like rotten lettuce no please
1: dude your people ferment cabbage
0: Yeah, but um, we're not, like, we're actively fermenting it. We're not just, like, taking a lettuce head and letting it sit too long in the sun and then be like, hmm, let's have that now. Mm, Also, lettuce and cabbage are different things.
1: Yeah, but kimchi is based on, like, a much more um, fresh cabbage. It's not the same. Like, the sauerkraut cabbage is a very rubbery cabbage to start with. It's very, like, thick and not crispy whereas like kimchi has a much crunchier lettuce see cabbage thing that's i mean it's still a little cabbage but it's more lettucey, I would say
0: yeah still anyway um <laughs> um <laughs> if you want you can uh, rate us on whatever platform you're using that would help us to f- to to get more people to find this this show
1: And seeing as we're in the point of promotion, I should also mention that two weeks ago, we released a new plant book club where we discussed plants that can kill, which was just a fascinating book. We all really loved it. And we're currently reading The Botany of Desire. So if you want to read along with us now and then hear our comments in about a month's time, go for it and of course I also want to again mention the new podcast brand new only one episode out there called Flora and Friends your Botanical cup of tea which is by our friend Judith Lundberg Felton and you should definitely follow that to find out more about Nasturtium over the next couple of weeks
0: yeah with that uh, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross goodbye
1: bye